I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Raptors Over Everything podcast. I'm your host, William Lou. Joining me on the podcast this week is author Michael Sokolov, New York Times Magazine contributing writer and co-author of Rapture. 15 teams, four countries, one NBA championship, the story of Nick Nurse with a forward from Phil Jackson. I've been talking about it on the podcast uh, multiple times, actually, because it's a fantastic book. It's a fantastic look into the uh, reigning coach of the year. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, So this book, how did it come about? Um, You know, what's the connection there? Uh, and, And really, why did you choose Nick? Well, I think it's I think Nick chose me in a way. Okay. Um, you know, Nick had had an idea that he wanted to write a book, and uh, uh, someone who he knew from Iowa, uh, a guy named Brandon Hurley, um, who was part of this, sort of came uh, to to Nick's agent, um, and I was brought on, and Nick and I had like a blind date up in. Uh, up in Toronto one day because I was suggested to him as somebody who could help him do this book. Uh, but of course we had to see if we could get along and we liked each other and we really did. And, you know, he agreed that, that, uh, that I was a person who could help him with the book. So that's, that's, that's the way it worked. He, he, I would say that he chose me and I, I'm really happy that he did. Yeah. Look, it's a fantastic book. I think you guys work together uh, quite well on this. Um, you know, so I guess I'll start here. So, so since Nick, he's since he's been brought on to, uh, I guess, promoted to assist or to head coach of the Toronto Raptors in 2018, he's had a really busy time. You know, um, obviously the promotion 2018, then Kawhi comes. You know, no big deal. Just uh, maybe the biggest enigma in in, <laughs> in NBA sports. Uh, and then you know he wins the title uh, that year. The season goes into June. Then he you know is touring the states. He's in Canada. And of course, he is also the head coach of the Canadian national team. So he uh, uh, had to go to training camp, I believe, in Australia and New Zealand. He went to China afterwards for the actual World Cup. And then he was right back to work. And of course, uh, there was this whole you know pandemic thing that uh, delayed the season and uh, everything like that. So honestly, when did he have time to write this with you? Like, take us through like the timeline of how this book came together when you guys had uh, just honestly all this time to put together. Because it seems like Nick has been working like two people at this point. <laughs> well, you're right about Nick's schedule. It's been intense. And it's a good thing that he loves to coach basketball because, you know, he's coached a lot of it in the last year plus. This book really came together after the championship season. So um, between the championship season and the start of last season, the unusual season that was last season. um, So we spent a lot of time uh, on FaceTime, Zoom, whatever. We spent, you know, a lot of time just talking. Um, But I also spent, you know, all of training camp, just about all of training camp in Quebec City with him. Um, which was about, you know, about a year ago now, which, first of all, was really cool. Quebec City is a beautiful city. Um, And, you know, just about all the time that Nick was not coaching, 
uh, we were we were walking in the city together out of out of tape recorder, and we took these incredibly you know pleasant long walks through that city. We stopped in record stores and browsed. We uh, stopped and got ice cream cones, and we were like just two dudes walking through Quebec City, except that I had a tape recorder, and I was just like going through this whole thing about his life and his basketball career. And I would say a lot of the big work of the book was done there in Quebec City. And it was just a, you know, looking back on it now from the perspective of all of us who are stuck in our homes, you know, in this pandemic, I look back on that time very fondly because uh, he was nice company and we had a good time doing this. And I, I, I hope that the book reflects the joy that he took in, in sort of spooling out his life. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I was also at that training camp, and what what I wouldn't give back to uh, just go out and walk, you know, walking around Quebec City. It's obviously, as you mentioned, a, a beautiful city, obviously yeah. with a lot of history, a uh, bit of a European flavor as well. Um, so, you know, you, you spent a lot of time with Nick. Uh, I, you know, what would you say is that quality about Nick that sort of makes him unique? Someone that you know is not necessarily just worthy of a biography, but also someone that made you interested. Well, I think he's a really unusual guy. You know, that sounds just like a pat thing to say, but I think his background having coached in England uh, where people truly do not care about basketball very much. <laughs> and, you know, his whole world travels, you know, that that's the sort of outlines of the story that makes, that makes the spine of the story. It's an interesting story to tell, but I also think that it's unusual that Nick is, you know, he, obviously he's a basketball freak. You know, in some ways that's like an X and O engineering job. But, you know, then there's this very human part of Nick. Um, and I also find him so, which is, and he's very skilled at that. Very, very skilled. I mean, to keep a basketball team together for 82 games plus the playoffs, really moving in the same direction, it's hard to do. You know, these guys are all like their own corporations yet they're very emotionally driven uh, and they're, they're, you know, it's, it's tough. And, you know, Nick is awfully good at that, especially for a guy who has not been in the NBA all that long. So found that part of him very interesting and worthy of, of telling. And then I think there's a quirkiness to Nick. There's a different nature to Nick. And I, you know, I hope that comes through in the book. It certainly came through to me. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, uh, this, this book takes, uh, you know, through, all of Nick Nurse's life, essentially. I mean, starting with sort of his upbringing in Iowa. How much do you think sort of his upbringing in Iowa shaped his existence, you know, now obviously, you know, 50 plus years later? And uh, what were some of your, you know, favorite, I guess, little anecdotes about Nick's time growing up in Iowa with what seemed to be the Brady Bunch, essentially? Yeah. Well, look, you know, here in the U.S., uh, you know, we have, we talk about the heartland and it, honestly, it can be a little tiresome because there's this, you know, it's like, oh, the heartland, these are the good people. It's like, oh, okay, come on. There's good people everywhere. But I do think there's a basic honesty to Nick and a work ethic that, that does come from, from Iowa and it comes from his family. You know, he was, he was the youngest of nine kids. So there is a, there's a, he knows how to compete uh, and he knows how to, how to sort of fit in as well. So, um, you know, my favorite, I think you asked my favorite story. I mean, my favorite story about Iowa and it really leads the book is Nick had a pole vault pit in his backyard. 
It's crazy. And, you know, they build it themselves and they throw a mattress down and like, you know, old rags and shirts and stuff. And they had, you know, and they nailed it together. And, you know, it was very dangerous. No child would be allowed to do that nowadays, probably. Uh, but, you know, him and his brothers were Iowa State pole vault champions, you know, one after the other after the other. And I, I just think of that as Nick. Whatever he's going to do, he's going to do it well. Uh, and also this little, like, basketball historian part of Nick. I'm like, wow, you must be the only, like, pole vaulter who ever made it to the NBA. He's like, no, man, uh, Tex winner. Um, Bill Jackson's former assistant coach, the late Tex winner. He'd have been in the Olympics for pole vaulting. So Nick's sort of like got a lot of stuff going on. There's the pole vaulting part. There's the history of pole vaulting part, the music part. But, I, you know, in terms of Iowa, I just thought that was like a untrammeled childhood, like a almost like a Huck Finn like thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to fish. We're going to uh, we're going to work in the cornfields. We're going to pole vault. You know, whenever the sun's out, we're just sort of on our own. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's one story you, you have in here where, you know, uh, I think, I don't know, maybe probably around the time of sunrise, 5, 6 a.m., there's just a, I don't know, a truck, I guess, a pickup truck that comes by and Nick just hops on. He's like, Dip. This is just how we uh, earn a little bit of extra money in the summertime. You know, that's just how to, how it goes. And it, yeah, I mean, it's, well, yeah, he was, you know, doing what, what is mostly done by migrant labor now. Yeah. He was uh, detasseling corn, making money as a kid, you know, really hot, difficult work where you walk, uh, you know, these rows of corn and you got to wear really heavy clothes, even if it's a hundred degrees out because the corn will cut you up. So, you know, you do that when you're growing up and you're, you've got a pretty hard exterior. Yeah. I would say, you know, with Nick, he's, it's, you know, and he kind of wrote it in this book as well, a little bit in terms of, um, you know, for him now to be in the position where he is, you know, where he's uh, NBA champion, coach of the year, world famous, there is still something very relatable about Nick in terms of he's very down to earth, uh, as you mentioned, for a guy who is wildly successful and, and highly accomplished, um, so, you know, so Nick actually has, well, first off, he actually, he, he, he said one, ran, randomly one time in like a postgame interview, he's like, yeah, I played like seven to 10 sports as a kid. And I was like, that's absurd. But I mean, it, it seemed very, very clear that he would have played seven to 10 sports if he was pole vaulting on a mattress. Uh, but, you know, he was what quarterback of his team. He was like the fourth nurse brother to be quarterback. Uh, and then he goes into playing basketball. And I think that's where sort of he's been really inspired by a coach, which, uh, uh, you know, Wayne Chandley, who actually he uh, spoke to and sort of inside the NBA on, on TNT when he won coach of the year, they brought in Wayne. Can you sort of talk to, to me about sort of the uh, coaching influences early in his life uh, in terms of, you know, both uh, coach Chandley and also maybe even his parents and things like that? Well, Wayne Chandley was his high school coach and, you know, look, you know, we, these guys who make it to the NBA are, are, and any pro sport are athletic freaks. They're, they're unbelievable, but you can't overlook that, that there are other people out in the world who's really good athletes. And Nick, Nick's like, was a flat out good athlete. I mean, I don't think you'd want to play golf against him. <laughs> no, he knows how to play sports. So he was a very good high school basketball player. And Wayne, Ch- and, and then a, and then a very good college player. And Wayne Chandley was his high school coach, and uh, he taught Nick a very important skill. Taught him how to shoot, and he taught everybody how to shoot. And one of the things that 
that I learned doing this book, and I think that readers will learn, is um, shooting is a weirdly undertaught aspect of professional basketball. The assumption is you can either shoot or you can't. Uh, but Nick is a shooting coach and it start, and, and a shoot was a shooter himself, shot 47% from three as a college player at Northern Iowa. And, and Chandley was the guy that taught him. They would, they would first sort of pantomime before they even had a basketball. They'd be out there, you know, doing the shooting motion like into the air. And you can just sort of like see these high school kids and come on, man, coach, when do we get a basketball? And, it's, <laughs> you know, Chandley, like, I don't know, maybe tomorrow, but let's see you do this first. And, you know, that's stuck in Nick's head. And, and I think it's really served him uh, because, you know, to not teach shooting, it's like, I don't know, you're going to, you're going to make a car, but you're going to concentrate on the cup holders and the seat covers uh, the non-essential things. Nick's like, well, this is basketball. We better concentrate on the essential. That's like, let's all figure out how to get the ball on the basket. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, there's a picture in this book about uh, the Nick Nurse pill. I mean, he produced and manufactured his own basketball, which he designed uniquely to help people um, <laughs> shoot properly. And and essentially, he gave a version of this basketball to Pascal Siakam when Pascal was a rookie. And of course, now he's an all-star, all-NBA forward, and he can shoot, you know, decently well. And back then, he just couldn't shoot. And Nick, you know, as the assistant coach then, gave him this sort of routine to go through. And and the results are fantastic. I mean, he's a very innovative guy, I think. You know, he's uh, – you've listed a couple of things in here that are just really a reflection of just a guy who kind of had to be very inventive to sort of get to the way he is now. Um, can you sort of share with me some of the little tricks that Nick has that – you know, like the elephant in the room, a literal elephant or sort of putting on hats as a de- as a sort of a prop during film sessions. You take me through some of the, you know, weird quirks that Nick Nurse has in terms of coaching. I think, first of all, you know, what the, 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 the one thing that Nick has that, that sort of is the uh, is the framework for all this is Nick has courage. Um, I think there are a lot of people in sports and a lot of people at high levels of industry who are really afraid they would rather fail in some traditional way than take a chance at succeeding in some inventive way. And Nick's like, you know what? The hell with it. You know, I'm going to try this and because I think it's going to work. But if it doesn't, I've got the courage to say, well, I tried something different. So, you know, as a coach, he's always going to tell the truth. He talks about the, the, the elephant in the room. He doesn't care. He's a first-year first coach. Some guy comes into his office and says, look, this is the deal. You know, you, you, you can't, you're not shooting it right. You're not passing it right. Uh, you know, your career may be over unless you do these three things that I'm telling you to do. So he's going to do that. Um, he's funny. You know, I think that uh, there was a moment uh, in a team meeting where uh, I guess it was before the finals and he was talking about uh, teams that weren't afraid of the moment. And he just put on a Philadelphia Eagles hat. Mm-hmm. Because they had not been afraid. I'm a Philadelphian, by the way. Um, so he had not been afraid of the moment, or, or the Eagles had not been afraid of the moment when they played the New England Patriots. And he put on an Eagles hat, and of course Kyle Lowry went crazy because he's a Philly guy too. Um, so he's going to be very upfront. He's going to be very inventive. I mean, the other inventive things he does is, you know, that championship series. You know, he played all kinds of zone defenses, box and ones. What Stephon Curry 
you know, famously called janky defenses. Mm-hmm. Everyone said, you can't play, you can't do that. Well, guess what? In last year's NBA finals and NBA playoffs, guys are playing zone all over the place. Oh, yeah. So that'll be a test for Nick because, you know, then you got to stay ahead of the curve. People will very quickly pick up what you do. Yeah, for sure. Um, actually, you know, now that you mentioned it, one thing that happened uh, this past season was I remember that game that you, you you wrote about in this book about, you know, James Harden had come to Toronto and the Houston Rockets were on fire. Uh, Harden at that time, I think he was averaging somewhere like 35, maybe 40 points per game, something ridiculous. He was unstoppable. And so the Raptors did something that, yeah, I don't think any other team had tried at that point, which was to essentially run uh, almost like a trap on James Harden as soon as he crossed half court for the whole game. It was a very odd game. I think the Rockets shot 63s. Eventually, they got hot and they won overtime. No big deal. Um, but, you know, Nick kind of talked about in this book about, you know, it's okay to invent. You know, you come up with an idea. You can keep it in your back pocket. And what's interesting is, you know, he's had this long, extensive career before coming to the NBA, and I thought it was very interesting to read about the fact that he essentially did something similar, you know, that strategy against Harden. He did that when he was coaching. I, I mean, I forget where he was coaching, Manchester or something like that. I I, that's that's very fascinating. Yeah. Well, I think that he, um, you know, it's a very fine line in sports. You've got to try to, you've got to genuinely try to win any game you're in. Uh, you can't, you can't toss a game away. And he doesn't. He absolutely does not. Um, but I think he's willing to see the regular season as a laboratory. So I'm going to try some stuff and I'm going to try it the whole game if I have to. And, and I think I can win this game, but if I don't win this game, we're going to acquire data. You know, we're going to get intelligence. I think he's been really successful at doing that. Really successful. Uh, because you really, you know, you know, and then sometimes he's just like crazy inventive, like, uh, in that one of those playoff games against the Celtics, they played a lineup, a small lineup at the end. And then I read in one of the Toronto papers or one of the websites that those five guys had not been on the court together um, for any more than like three minutes the whole season. Yeah, yep. that's courage too, and that's crazy. Nobody does that. Yeah, so that's just instinct. That's instinct for sure, for sure. Or and I think. Uh, to, to your point about courage, though, I, I think it takes a lot of courage to have gone through the career Nick had because it was not a linear pattern by any means. You know, um, I, I think f- for a lot of coaches, I mean, first off, where sporting coaches come from, there's like one pipeline that's like a former great player, usually a former great point guard. You know, a, a Steve Kerr, yeah. Steve Nash just got named, Mark Jackson, you know, Jason Kidd. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? And um, those guys play a, a career. And then if they have, you know, the interest of coaching, they usually get a good chance to coach at some point. And whereas for Nick, he's almost like an NBA nobody. Uh, so he had to go through this whole process. And there's lots of details in this book where I'm reading it. And I'm thinking to myself, if I were in Nick's position and I had to randomly take on ownership of a team in, I, I don't know, in, in somewhere in England, uh, and, you know, I have to do accounting for the team and I have to work payroll, I might just say, you know what, maybe basketball's not it for me. Maybe I should just become an accountant, which I think was one of the careers Nick went through. That's also courage too, right? I mean, in, in terms of that kind of resilience to to have the kind of unorthodox career he did. Well, I think it's courage and I think it's confidence. And, and you know, there are a couple of times in the book where he talks about having doubts and thinking, well, maybe I'm going to, maybe I got to do something different. And then he looked at all those options and he said, you know what? 
I can't see myself doing any of those things. Yeah. In the book, uh, you read that he basically bottomed out in England. The last time team that he coached, he also owned, and which was in Brighton. Mm-hmm. And like most teams in England, they eventually went belly up. And Nick came back to Iowa, and he he was broke, and he was putting flyers on cars at at AAU tournaments advertising himself as a private shooting coach for people's like 11 year olds and stuff. Mm. So that's an interesting story. But the most bizarre thing about it is it's like 12 years ago or something. Yeah. You know, it's, I, I might be wrong about, I might be wrong about the number of years. Uh-huh. But it's not, it's not that long ago. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that in some ways, Nick would tell you, you know what? I, I genuinely, I'm the same guy that was doing that, but I got a couple breaks along the way and somebody finally gave me the chance that I deserved. And then when I got that chance, I didn't say, Oh man, I'm that guy who was sticking flyers on cars. It's like, Hey man, like this is the chance I can do this job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a, uh... That's unbelievable. First, <laughs> I would think you were a maniac if you were coming up to me with flyers telling me how you're going to teach my 11 year how to shoot. I have no idea who who Nick was at that time. And, you know, but I think there's also something to be said about creating his own chances, too. Right. I mean, not a lot of coaches can say that they essentially convince someone to start up a G League franchise, which still was in, in, in existence in Iowa, too, uh, to essentially he did that with a local businessman just to get a foot into the door to coach a D league team. Uh, that's also really impressive to me. I mean, I guess kind of what I'm trying to say is Nick has always had this hustle about him, right? Where, yeah, he's living in his sister's basement, essentially in Iowa, but he drives past an empty stadium and he, he turns that into a, a D league team. I mean, what's the story there? Well, he, you know, this is when he came back from England and he, he, he was broke mm-hmm. and uh, he drives past this beautiful new arena. I think, I think it's now called the Wells Fargo arena. Um, which had been built. And he's like, yeah, man, there ought to be a G League team. Now, at this point, he could not even get a G League team over the course of the last several years to give him a job as an assistant coach in the G League. So he sort of puts together a consortium of business people in Iowa, convinces them to, to get a G League franchise specifically so he can coach it. And, you know, that was what catapulted him into U.S. professional basketball. He did very well as a G League coach. He won a championship. Then he went down to the Rio Grande Valley uh, and won another championship. And that's how he got himself to Toronto. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, there's a, I think there's a point in that book where, where the book, you know, Nick, Nick says, you know, there's a fine line between entrepreneurialism and desperation. <laughs> so somewhere in between that at that point, but it's a great, it's a great passage in the book though. I really enjoyed writing that part of it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, you know, it's weird because obviously, you know, as a Toronto Raptors a reporter and as a fan of the team as well, I'm, I'm obviously looking to get into details of like, okay, what was a championship? Like, what was a locker room? Like, what was it like coaching Kawhi and Kyle and Pascal and all these guys. But I'm also thinking like, man, I just love these little Nick Nurse stories, right? Because I, it's just so unique. It's so few people that have stories like him. Um, you know, now he's coaching Iowa at this point. He he he, he doesn't meet Nate Bjorkren because he actually had coached Nate before that. Uh, but I mean, you're telling a story where essentially where Nick Nurse kind of made his bones was he would be in a basement 
with uh, his assistant, Nate, who has now become a head coach of the Indiana Pacers. So congratulations, Nate. That's also a fantastic story. The two of them are just in this basement together, coming up with hypothetical plays and putting them into a spreadsheet after drawing them on a whiteboard. I, I can't even imagine some of the stuff that he's going through right there, but um, that's kind of what it takes to, to win. And, and if you're, as you mentioned, you know, it, when you're desperate, you got to make some of these moves and Nick has always been very creative in the face of desperation. I mean, that's, I, I can't yeah, imagine well, I Steve Nash doing that right now. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> no, I think he realized because it had taken him so far long to get there that, that these jobs are hard to get. Mm-hmm. They're easy to lose. And once you lose it, you know, so him and Nate, him and Nate are a great story. And I'm very happy for Nate. I think Nick's going to miss Nate. You know, Nate was maybe 11 or 12 years old. Nate was in the stands uh, watching Nick play in the high school championship game in Iowa back when Nate was a kid. So he's maybe 10 years younger, something like that. So, but, you know, then they met up and, you know, this story you're telling about them, you know, and spending a whole summer in the basement, <laughs> they hadn't done that well that first season with the Iowa Energy. Mm-hmm. So these two guys are desperate. Uh, they're thinking, and they had lost a lot of close games. So they spent like two months drawing all the stuff on the board, all this imaginary basketball. Okay, two minutes to go. We're down eight points. What do we do? You know, 10 seconds. We got the ball on the left sideline. What do we do here? What if it's a home game? What if it's uh, an away game? What if. You know, it was crazy stuff and um, obsession. You know, yeah. obsession uh, works sometimes. Yeah, and honestly, you, you see some of it now with the Raptors. That's what's really interesting because it this book takes you into sort of the process of essentially how the sausage is made. I mean, you, you see it now with the Raptors. Okay, they'll be down in the fourth quarter. There's a game the, the, this year where the Raptors were down 30 points and they played a full-court press with their third unit guys the whole, the whole fourth quarter and they made a 30-point comeback. Obviously, they needed a lot of things to go right. And Kyle Lowry was fantastic, right. but I mean, I'm, I'm sure on that whiteboard somewhere is, you know, down 30 in the fourth yeah. quarter. What are you going to do? And uh, you yeah. had an answer, you know? Yeah. 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 Now, so uh, there's this connection throughout the book with Phil Jackson. Um, and obviously Phil actually ended up writing the forward to the book. Uh, but, you know, Phil has sort of been a factor throughout Nick's life, you know, even before the two of them met. Uh, can you take me through some of the history there, how Phil inspired Nick and how they end up meeting and essentially producing this forward as well. Well, when Nick uh, was coaching England, you know, Nick, I think what attracts Nick to basketball, and I also think this makes him different. He wants to win. He wants to be clever about it. But he also has an aesthetic sense. He really likes beautiful basketball. Mm. And before Phil Jackson started running the um, triangle offense in Chicago, you know, basketball mostly consisted of pound it into the post, see what happens. If you don't get a point out of that, you know, throw it back out. Somebody shoot the ball. So Jackson, you know, this improvisational thing going on that looked looked to Nick like jazz. And, and you know, it had a lot more options for the players, a lot more creativity, even though you had Michael Jordan, one guy at the center of it. So Nick would get these, uh, not DVR, he would get a VCR tapes over in England. Right. They, they cost a lot of money because he wasn't making a lot of money. He would just watch these things, you know, one after the other, after the other, he'd watch them 10 times. He'd watch them with the team. So he studied Phil Jackson from afar. And then when he got the head coaching job um, through a contact, uh, the, the Raptors, the actual medical guy um, who worked with Phil in LA, 
uh, said, you want to meet Phil? Because, you know, you're going to prepare to be a head coach. You want to see how Phil did it. So Nick took this sort of tour before he, before he uh, be, began coaching as a head coach. Uh, and he stopped in on Jackson in Flathead Lake, Montana. It's a, it's a great part of the book because he doesn't know if he's going to be there for an hour, two hours, uh, a lunch, a dinner. And uh, Jackson keeps saying stuff like, okay, so uh, that was a great lunch. I'll see you at dinner. Mm. And Nick's like, okay. And uh, they'd go to dinner and then they'd sit around the lake for three hours. And Nick was loving this, you know, mm -hmm. just soaking up. And after dinner, Phil would be like, okay, whenever you get up in the morning, call me. And it's just like kept going on. And he ended up spending three days with Phil Jackson. So a fun part of the book is, is just, is just going through that. It's a little, little buddy movie within the book. Yeah. I mean, look, that has been a fantastic experience. And, and, you know, again, I don't want to oversell Nick. He's young in his NBA career, but do you sort of see some parallels between sort of the way Phil operates and sort of the way Nick operates? I mean, the both guys that are basketball junkies for sure, but also are guys that are very creative in their thought, um, have sort of a philosophy when they approach the game and quite honestly have multiple interests, you know, both uh, very well-rounded people. I think there's some similarity. Obviously Phil Jackson had a, an NBA career, but Phil Jackson was an outsider. You know, yeah, by yeah. personality, you I know, think he coached in Puerto coached Rico one year or something like that. Puerto Rico coached in the uh, Continental Basketball League, right. which called <laughs> the Cockroach Basketball League. You know, nobody really wanted to give Phil a job because he was sort of hippie-ish. He was an out, you know, he was wifty. And, um, you know, and, and Nick, uh, you know, Nick is, is not a hippie, but Nick's got his own ideas. And, you know, he didn't have a coaching tree. And, you know, one of the things that I think Nick comes, comes to this job with now is a lot of NBA coaches, they land in a city because they've been in the game. They got 15 friends. Let's have dinner. Let's order another bottle of wine. Uh, they're the center of attention. They're holding court. It takes up a lot of time to be that guy. Mm. Uh, but, but it's fun. They enjoy it. Nick doesn't have those guys in every city. And by his personality, Nick is not a loner, but Nick doesn't mind being alone. I think he likes being alone. He plays his music. Um, he reads. Uh, he listens to music. And I think if it helps make him an even more creative person because there's not all this background noise. And if you've been around NBA coaches and NBA teams, there's like a circus around them. And sometimes oh, yeah. there's a circus around the coach. Like, I don't know these guys, but, you know, well, I, I know Rick Pitino, you know, Rick Pitino, friends everywhere. Maybe the Van Gundys are that way, whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, these guys know all the best restaurants and Nick doesn't want to be that guy. And I think he's used it to his, to his advantage. Yeah. Well, that's a very interesting point. Um, now, okay. So, you know, over the course of this book, writing with Nick, as you mentioned, you guys, you know, took uh, romantic strolls across Quebec city and things like this, uh, looking at the Chateau Fontenac and, uh, you know, was there one question that sort of he specifically would not answer? Were there things that, I mean, I'm not asking you to expose Nick, but you know, were, were there sort of things that he would not go into, uh, in the course of your questioning and things like that? You know, I don't, I wouldn't say there were, you know, this is a different kind of book. You know, I have, I have, a number of different aspects to my writing career. I'm on contract with the New York times magazine. I write a, and I, and I also have been writing some 
election pieces for the for the opinion section. So I've got that part. I write my own books, meaning, you know, not as a co-author. Mm-hmm. And then this is another facet of it, and it, it's Nick's book. So I, I, you know, I wouldn't press him um, to, to, I mean, I let, I, I would say that I led Nick. And if there were areas he didn't want to go into that I thought he should go into, um, I led him a little more strongly. Mm-hmm. And it's not like there was pushback. But what's in the book is what Nick wanted to be in the book. I think, I think he was very open in the book, um, but it wasn't really my job to, to press him. Right. I wouldn't say that's, that's just like not the gig in that case. All right. Well then, um, will you tell us sort of a, a story that you thought was really great, but then sort of missed the cut in terms of the final edit or everything like that? Oh man, that's a tough one. Um, what did I think was really great that missed the cut? And you have to understand these are, you know, it's close to a 300 page book. There's a lot <laughs> that does fit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I think that all the best stuff, you know, is in the book. If there was something that was really good, I'd have written a couple more pages. I, I'm not being evasive. Mm-hmm. I just think that, uh, that I was charmed by a lot of the stories and, and uh, I, I think they're, mo- I think they're in there. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't have that. I mean, I think that, you know, my favorite parts of the book are, I think there's, I think there's really an emotional content to the book that really, that really touched me. I mean, these mentors of Nick's, mm-hmm. uh, Wayne Shandley, who was his high school coach. And then there's another guy named Darrell Mudra, who right. was, right. a high, was a college football coach. That he was, you know, at mostly places you never heard of. And almost no one has heard of Darrell Mudra. Yeah. And, uh, but he was really meaningful to Nick because he was also very inventive, coached from the press box. And Nick got to know him and he's an old man now. I think he's well into his nineties. And uh, when Nick won the championship, uh, I, I take that back. When Nick got the head coaching job uh, at, um, at Toronto, uh, Mudra was, he called Mudra. Mudra was one of the first person he called. I just thought that was so cool because, mm-hmm. you know, he would have made this old man's uh, day or week. And then I, I think uh, I think he, I think he got a I think he got a championship ring for Mudra. And like there's nothing in it for Nick to do those things. And he would never advertise them. You know, he's not going to tell you about he doesn't see it as a good deed. He's just he's just connected to some of these people in a way that I thought was really cool and, and spoke well of him. And also were great stories. Oh, yeah. I, I think you shared uh, in, in the book, there's a story about how I think Mujer wrote a book or something like that. And uh, maybe Nick misplaced his copy or something. And he had to get another copy of it. I think he paid like $90 or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know. Mujer, uh, Mujer, Mujer wrote a book. Um, oh, man, it's in my office somewhere. Uh, better be because I got to give it back to Nick. Give it back to Nick. Hold on. Uh Yes, uh, this is Nick's book, uh, Freedom in the Huddle. Yeah. And uh, it's a heck of a book. And it's like a Bible for Nick. And the whole point of it is, you know, there's a lot. There's a whole chapter in the book about this book. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool, I think. But, but the gist of the book is that people, that, that athletes and all people have their own personal interests. And if you go into coaching a team and you're like, 
okay, we're a team. I want you to give up your personal interests and just have the team's interests at heart. And we're going to go forward that way. And Mudra says, that's ridiculous. Um, Cause that's not how people operate. And Mudra says, you need to identify what someone's personal interest is if you're going to lead them. And then you need to marry that personal interest to the team's interest. And that's the way you go forward. And I, you know, that's, a philosophy that um, a lot of corporations now have, but it's, it's tough to be a leader because when somebody makes you a coach or a CEO, uh, you know, and especially when you're a man, I think, uh, you know, the, the natural instinct is, well, I'm the boss now. You do what I say. Mm-hmm. And Nick doesn't go forward that way. Yeah. And I think a lot of coaches would say they don't go forward that way, but, but they do. But I think Nick, Nick truly is trying to, uh, you know, within reason, coach the Mudra way. Yeah, and, and he's spoken about it a few times about just look, his approach to these players, as you mentioned, man, NBA players, they have so many interests around them, agents, families, uh, you know, all sorts of people in their corner and everything like that. They're getting pulled in every direction. Of course, they're trying to maximize their career earnings. They're multimillionaires, they are stars, they're you know, very, very popular people. Uh and, and Nick's sort of approach to dealing with them is sort of like, look, you know, I want to help you maximize your career maximize you know your payday the way we're going to do this is this if you do these things well as a team as a player contribute to the team we win everyone will win and and that's sort of how he's always approached it which i think is very cool um because yeah i mean you know i think as as fans of a team you always kind of selfishly want you know everyone to serve the team everything like that and then of course everyone to take discounts for the team things like that's not how sports operates it just really isn't and nick fundamentally understanding that is yeah. very important to being a great manager of people. Absolutely. And the money thing is unavoidable. Now, Nick just got a new contract. I have no idea what's in it, but, you know, he clearly got a, I'm sure he got a very good raise. But, you know, until he got the contract, there's guys on that team making literally 10 times what he was making. <laughs> still going to be guys making yeah. a lot more than he's making. So you are not technically their boss. Um, you are their leader. You are their, you know, facilitator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and he understands that. Yeah. I mean, especially when Kawhi was there. <laughs> I, I feel like, you know, you know. Absolutely. Although, man, I'll add this one thing. The yeah. other thing that I, that I think really made it fun for me to write is Nick's got this little part of him, like 5% of him that's always like, floating out this like a camera looking in at what's going on. And a lot of the time it's looking in and sort of like laughing a little bit, you know, knowing things are funny. Yeah. So very tense moments that are described in the book where somebody's waiting for Kawhi to say something or, uh, you know, cause Kawhi was inscrutable and sometimes he says something and it's very cinematic and to the point. And you can just, you know, Nick, there's that little part of Nick that I think was thinking, this is pretty cool. And this is sort of funny. And so he's in the moment, but there's this little part of him that's, that's enough outside the moment to be able to tell a really great story about it. Yeah. Now, one of my favorite things is just Nick, you know, in the finals telling some stories and Kawhi just being like, look, I'm tired of hearing D league stories. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just such a funny thing, but honestly, Nick nurse's life is, is there's a whole series of D league stories and sort of culminates in the, you know, what he is now. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, and really, I just got two more questions for you. One, you know, Nick is obviously a very well-rounded person. You know, he's lots of interest in music. He's pursuing a PhD, uh, you know, and everything like that. And, and obviously, as you mentioned, well-read and everything like that. I mean, in terms of the music part, um, I, I think it went into the music part about three pages, three or four pages, but sort of, I, I don't know, did you hear Nick play some music, you know, anything like that? What, what's Nick like as a musician, I guess? <laughs> Well, of all the things that I'm not, I'm not a music critic. Uh-huh. Um, I love music. Uh, I, my wife comes from a very musical family and was herself a musician, but, you know, not me. But uh, no, I mean, I think clearly if you've seen Nick play with the Arkells and uh, I've heard him play the keyboards, I've seen the piano and his, you know, his hotel suites. I mean, Nick's no slouch. Um, he, you know, he's no slouch at all. He can read music can play music. He's got a, a certain inner confidence about it. Uh, I don't think he would tell you that he could make a living at it. But, you know, if you if you think about it, like basketball, if you if you get in a pickup game and the guys are a little better than you are, uh, but you you know how to play, mm. you know, they'll let you out there and you you know, you know how to set a pick, you know how to roll, you you know where to pass the ball. Yeah. Um, he's up there with the Arkells and somebody else. I mean, he knows what to do. Yeah. No, that's listen. It's it's very impressive that he's he's doing all this. I mean, uh, even things like a PhD and everything like that. I mean, to to find the time to do all this, you know, contribute to this book. It's uh, it's it's fantastic. Again, you know, it's it's a very 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 good book. And then lastly, I guess the question to you is sort of, in in your eyes, sort of what makes for a good coach. Um. Well, I was going to say a good basketball coach, but any coach. I think that, you know, the coaches say, oh, X's and O's are only 15% of it. That's true. But as Nick says in the book, you got to get that right. Players want you to put them into a situation uh, to win and to make them look good and make them make money. And, you know, Nick's obviously is good at that. So you got to have the basketball part, right? And then I think you got to be – uh, in the modern NBA, you have to understand your players as human beings. Uh, you got to understand that they have fears and insecurities, and you can't look at them as, you know, these superhuman athletic figures because that's only part of them. And, and they're, they're playing against other guys with those physical qualities. So I think I think you have to be able to relate to, you know, who they are as athletes and people. Um, I think that uh, you also have to understand that, uh, let me say this, I think you have to like them. You know, I've been around coaches don't like their players. And when things go wrong, you know, they blame everything on the players. And I've been a lot around a lot of coaches who just get sour and, the, you know, some of these guys, you know, remain in basketball, they remain in coaching. They have a long career. They succeed in, in telling ownership. It's, it's never their fault. I think Nick, Nick likes people. Nick admires these players. I think he understands uh, it's not as easy as it looks. So I think you got to get the basketball part. you got to get the human part. you got to actually like your players. So that's what I would say. But, you know, that's just me from my regularly uh, point of view here. Um, he would be, you know, he would know and, and uh, you know, much better. Well, there you go. Um, 
Michael, congratulations on the book, Rapture. Go pick it up wherever you pick up books nowadays. Um, preferably in a local bookshop. Maybe do that. I mean, I guess, you know, with restrictions and things like that. But uh, wherever you can safely pick up the book, do so because it's fantastic. I think um, you would take a lot from it. It's obviously it's it's Nick's story, uh, but it's, it's well written on, on your part, well researched. And uh, it's filled with little fascinating details. I mean, listen, uh, Nick's always a guy who will just randomly throw like, oh, yeah, I was coaching in Belgium and the other team had a 40 point lead to start the game and I had to make a comeback or, oh, yeah, I, I randomly coached uh, Dennis Rodman. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? So he's he's full of stories. This book is full of stories. So uh, congratulations to, I guess, both you and Nick on the book. And uh, thanks for your time, Michael. You are very welcome. I really enjoyed it. Anytime. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.